Do I start it or? Buddhists speak of three universal characteristics of all conditioned reality. This, of course, is what, what Christians would call created reality. Conditioned reality is everything except Nibbana. So, of course, it includes everything about us, all of our beings. And these three characteristics that are part of all of this conditioned reality are the fleeting nature of everything, impermanence, are in the Pali language, anicca. The second is the basic unsatisfactoriness of, of earthly existence, that we're not going to find any real lasting satisfaction, and this is called dukkha in Pali. And the third is anatta, or no self. As meditation practice develops, we get increasingly deep insights into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. Were I to, to ask you, of course you would say, well, of course I know things change. And of course I know that life can be pretty grim, even though it has some good minutes. Intellectually, we can grasp these notions. And life also teaches us these truths. We only have to have another birthday or undergo an illness or witness the death of a pet or a friend. And we have living experience that things change. Um, and that change is often unpleasant. No self is a little harder for most people to grasp, but usually they also can get some intellectual understanding of it fairly easily. So you can say we know these things, but we know them only superficially. We haven't understood them in a way that really affects how we live. We learn about these three universal characteristics of conditioned reality quite differently in our meditation practice. It teaches them in a way that's ineradicable and that affects the way that we live. So tonight's talk is on impermanence. Uh, the last time I spoke here, I think I spoke on dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, so I'm just picking up another of these characteristics. I was trained as a psychologist, as you know, and I want to start with a few psychological findings about change before I turn to spiritual teachings. Psychologists consider change a real stressor. It taxes the nervous system which in turn can produce genuine medical illness if we get too overstressed. We actually, we psychologists actually have scales to measure how much stress a person is currently under. And it's based on how much change we're undergoing at any given time. Even experiences that we would consider positive, a job promotion, a wedding, give us stress points, just as do deaths, divorce, job loss, and illness. Now, we all differ in our capacity to handle a lot of change at one time, but whatever this capacity might be, meditation practice substantially increases it. Illness. Studies of visits to sick bay on military vessels 
and to the hospital from nursing homes have turned up interesting relationships between change and illness. In these settings, change often precipitated medical illness. Now, admittedly, these studies were done on people who were in stressful situations to begin with, but the findings still illustrate the debilitating effect that change can have on us. The most common time for older people to die is within a year of the loss of a spouse to death. And the closer the relationship, the stronger this finding. If someone gets past the first year after their spouse dies, risk starts dropping off. Illness is also more common in, year, in the year following bereavement. But positive life changes also are related to stressful effect. A surprising number of people become depressed after receiving a promotion or attaining some other goal. Studies show that excessively conservative attitudes are most often based on fear of change. Psychologists started recognizing such interesting findings when studies showed that churchgoers on the average are more prejudiced than non-churchgoers. And this was an intriguing and unexpected finding, so they wanted to find out what was going on here. They broke it down into reasons why people go to church. And they found that for seriously spiritual people, it didn't hold. They were less prejudiced. But this finding was the strongest. The most prejudiced were for those who, for whom church was primarily a comfort, a way to be with people like themselves, a forum for social visiting to banish loneliness, a way to build a good reputation in the community, and other such motives that they called extrinsic motives. In other words, Churchgoers who use church for non-spiritual reasons are the most prejudiced. Many studies have found this to be true for both racism and sexism, and I bet it also holds true for homophobia, although I don't know of any studies on that. Psychologists trace this to fear motivation. Both prejudice and the church are bulwarks of stability and lack of change in a community. They maintain the status quo. So prejudice and church going serve the same function for people. They keep them in a comfortable sameness. One psychologist concluded, quote, a large number of people by virtue of their psychological makeup require for their living both prejudice and religion. So it's again the change that, that is the the agent that they're focusing on here. People don't like change. Perceived threats to an established social order also motivate insecure people toward authoritarian organizations, either religious or secular. I think that 9-11, which suddenly and greatly changed how safe Americans feel, accounts in large part for the following shift to extremely conservative positions among a lot of Americans. Historically, most conversions to the most conservative church denominations occur during economic bad times, suggesting a reaction to the stress of this change. 
People thus threatened by change are drawn, as I said, to authoritarian religion for structure and security. Both unconventional authoritarian cults and conventional fundamentalist religions can serve such personal needs. A Baptist minister who is also a psychologist wrote, quote, religious proponents and detractors alike can agree that religion functions to meet needs of those who feel frustrated, threatened, inadequate, deprived, close quote. The person who most loudly declares the absolute authority of the Koran or the Bible might be clinging for dear life to the one thing that stands for secure sameness when they feel threatened by a world that's moving too rapidly for them. In, the, in America, religion is one aspect of life that forms the fabric of a highly conventional American way of life. It serves people who seem firmly committed to the status quo, to following the mottos, make no waves, and don't rock the boat. Of course, trying to retain sameness is attempting the impossible. Change happens whether we want it or not. And this deep insight of the Buddha into change prepares us to be willing to accept change without fighting it. As one t um, Asian teacher said, it's not change that's the problem, it's that we want change not to happen. A University of Minnesota psychology professor who started as a mentor to me and then wound up being a friend led seminars for divorced and bereaved people. He always began by saying, all relationships end in parting. Initially, this might seem a cruel thing to say to people who are mourning, but most found it quite liberating once they fully considered it. What had happened to them was not their own unique suffering. It's something that all human beings eventually face. All relationships end in parting, by death if not before. So there's some solace in the sense of solidarity with others that this understanding brings. In our everyday lives, we don't like to think about impermanence. We like to live as if we're never going to die and as if everything we have now will always be with us. The Hindu scriptural epic, the Mahabharata, the story of the god Krishna, says that the most wonderful thing in the world, wondrous thing in the world, is that we see people all around us getting sick, aging, and dying, and yet we think it is not going to happen to us. <laughs> Impermanence is the raw material of our day-to-day -day living. Experiences come and go. People enter our lives and leave them. Each day is full of changing smells, sights, and sounds. We grow up, enter adulthood, choose a livelihood, and usually a life partner, maybe parent children, and likely grandchildren. We can't stop the flow of change, even if we choose not to embark on new experiences. <clears throat> Yet we seldom think of this as really reflecting the radical impermanence in our lives. Sometimes an occasional experience will catch up with us 
that makes us reflect on impermanence. When fall comes, the last rose in our garden might look especially precious to us as it's dying. Or we might hear the haunting melody of the last rose of summer played. More importantly, we might lose something of great importance to us. A relationship, an heirloom, an activity, maybe health. Loss has brought a lot of people to spiritual practice because they've realized that they're no longer able to run away from the inexorable passing of time. Early meditation practice very quickly shows us the on-off nature of experience. We see how rapidly thoughts come and go in the mind. This is a revelation for many people. They had never before realized how flighty the mind is. Various mind states, moods, and emotions also arise and fall away. The mental contents of the ever-changing mind come and go with amazing rapidity. And until we begin to meditate, we're usually not aware of how much our thoughts and moods change. If we pay close attention in our practice, we see how each experience arises, and we see that it also ends. Sound comes, and then it goes. A shoulder twitches and goes back to being still. When we first start seeing such ordinary experiences with meditative eyes, we sometimes feel pretty exhilarated and excited about realizing things that we'd already known but never really seen clearly before. This is part of an early purifying insight, the knowledge of how mind and body work. And this is given in the text as the first major insight in our development in our practice, uh, how mind and body work. However, even after meditation experience has forced us to accept considerable impermanence about the mind's content and about sensory experiences, we might still think of the body as a pretty permanent thing. A quick cure for this is to look in the mirror and then look at a photograph from 10 years ago. If you have one, look at a photograph of yourself at age 10 or even younger. Biologists tell us that every seven years we have a completely new body as old cells have died off and been replaced by new ones made from the protein building blocks that we've eaten. But this reproduction is faulty and the errors that creep in are what we call aging. So while some continuity is present, there's also that continual change the continual birth and death of cells in the body. Eventually, cells become so flawed that they can no longer sustain life. Uh, that many errors have crept in. That is, of course, assuming some bug or accident doesn't get you first. The science of physics also confirms impermanence. It teaches us very solid-looking table is mostly empty space filled with millions of spinning, whirling atoms. It's in constant flux, even though it looks very fixed and unchanging. In the final analysis, some people call upon the notion of soul as something that doesn't change and is permanent. 
Um, that's a topic for another talk, um, but rest assured, John of the Cross had a very Buddhist viewpoint on all of that, too. Eventually, in our meditation practice, we start to experience the truth of impermanence in a way that's quite different from intellectual comprehension, life experience, or even our early meditation experiences. Insights come that are called knowledge by comprehension, which is another major milestone in the practice when this starts happening. These experiences deeply impress on us these three characteristics of reality, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness, in ways that are life-changing. For many people, the initial deep meditation experience of impermanence is very shattering. A very ordinary thing triggers a recognition of impermanence that leaves us likely to feel devastated, to cry, to shake. For one meditator who said she cried for days afterwards, it was just the sight of a leaf falling. For another who came to me in tremendous distress, a dandelion gone to seed triggered it. For a third, it was the changing patterns that a crystal hung in a window cast on the wall. Meditators often feel like the bottom has completely dropped out, have cried for days, and have been devastated for some time. But if you try to explain the experience to someone, it sounds very trite because its triggers are so ordinary. But what has happened is that we've seen the truth of impermanence at a level beyond words or intellectual depiction. This quite simple experience of change that triggered it brings the deep knowledge that what is true of this object is true of everything. And our underlying illusions of any permanence and sameness are shattered. And we see the utter fragility of life and everything else. And often see everything as simply heading toward extinction or death. It leaves us feeling like we have nothing to hold on to and that there's no security anywhere. We've deeply understood that everything is continually being born and dying. We can see that even the knowing consciousness itself dies with each experience and is reborn on the next. Listening to the bell down there can give you some taste of this. When you start hearing movement in the sound of the bell, when it's not just a blast of sound, you start hearing movement, you start noticing gaps between the pulses of sound, when you're very deeply focused on a bell, you can even experience gaps in your conscious awareness between the pulses of sound. In very deep practice, this can last for some time until the sound finally completely dies and another experience has not yet drawn our attention. There's just no consciousness going on until finally something else is strong enough to wake the consciousness up again. Now I'm going to go to John of the Cross. He didn't speak much about change and impermanence as being characteristics of our existence. He simply took it for granted. The famed bookmark of his 
non-counterpart, Teresa of Avila, is the best Carmelite statement that closely mirrors Buddhist teachings on impermanence. It says not to let anything agitate or disturb you because all things pass. And only God can satisfy. And Buddhists would say only Nibbana can satisfy. John's understanding of the human person was based on what is called scholastic theology. And it divides everything into two classes, substance and accidents. Substance is the basic reality of something, and accidents are things that come into being and pass out of being. John considered almost all of us accidental. Clearly our bodies are. We've seen that our mental content is. In fact, John found only one enduring aspect of our beings, and he called that our capacity to receive loving knowledge of God. But as he describes it, this is not some thing. It's just an emptiness waiting to be filled. So we're hollow at our core, according to John. And this mirrors the understanding that our consciousness as Buddhists see it is simply a receptive capacity that receives all of our experiences. And when we're not clinging to anything else, can receive the experience of Nibbana. John also spoke much about changes that occur in spiritual practice, and his whole body of writings is pretty much a commentary on this. And the course of development and practice that he described and the kind of experiences that we have so closely mirror Buddhist teachings and experience that it's amazing. He talked about a transition from discursive reflection to contemplation, and this is, is when you thinking really goes. You stop doing thinking in your practice and it starts to feel more like you just show up and the practice does itself in you. John called this contemplation and said God caused it. Buddhists believe that just the deepening concentration and mindfulness bring us to this transition point where thinking really ceases to be that much of a problem and we just show up as I say. Um, it's an important lesson in impermanence when this happens, though, because very often before that, we thought we had finally arrived and knew exactly what we were doing, and all of a sudden, our practice starts to change, and we're not in control. We're not in the saddle in the way that we thought we were before. Um, for Christians who have sort of milked spiritual sweetness out of the thinking that they did, they lose that sweetness and um, they're very dry and they don't get any satisfaction or pleasure out of their prayer anymore and um, they feel like everything has gone wrong and they want to give up. Now losing the devotional sweetness is painful but it's necessary to be able to move on and in the Buddhist practice, what we lose, that John also mentioned, that, that Christians lose, is, as I say, that sense of, I know how to meditate, and I am doing my meditation. And it becomes much, much more receptive and passive. Um, what John taught about being unwilling to accept this kind of change, he said it harms yourself. And if you want to try to retreat to how things were before, you really impair your development.
I like the images he has. He says, it's like somebody who turns away from what's already been done to do it again, or who leaves a city only to re-enter it, or like a hunter who abandons the prey to go hunting again. So it's, it's like you've got this gift handed to you, but you don't want it. Now, the benefits of undergoing this painful time of change are pretty much, and, and this is, is, as I said, the time when we start getting those very deep, unnerving insights, and, and, and it, it makes us feel very insecure and inadequate and like we're, we're not in control. Um, it brings some wonderful changes, and the changes that John talked about are the same kind of changes that we find happening to us in our Buddhist practice. Um, it brings a great lessening of attachment. If we have deeply, deeply seen that we can't hold on to it anyway, it's going to change, it's going to go. To consider it ours um, just creates suffering. And so we get less attached to these things because we realize that we can't count on them being there and not changing. This is something that a lot of us with um, uh, our retirement or other money in the stock market have learned recently. So I mean, here's a very real lesson that has just happened to us in this when we think we had something there that we could count on and all of a sudden, poof. Well. That's a pretty hard um, life lesson, but still doesn't mirror quite like you get it in meditation. So one thing it does is it greatly lessens our attachments. We cling less to things. It also brings a great increase in self-knowledge. We start really seeing beneath the surface of us um, the things that we really don't want to know about ourselves sometimes, but that are necessary to know. And this is often very, very painful. It sometimes causes a great reevaluation of previous conduct that we hadn't thought much about when we did it, but it starts looking different in the light of a deeper meditation practice. And, um, most of, of course, most of what we learn about ourselves is bad news because we already know the things we don't mind knowing. So, so the deeper we go, the more buried the things that we would prefer not to know, but that it's very helpful for us to know. Um, we also get less arrogant because we had thought we knew what we were doing. And um, when everything seems to be falling apart on us, um, it, it brings a little bit of humility. Um, to us. Um, so we realize the unreliability of the things of the world that they will eventually lead us. So we realize it doesn't make sense to put much stock in them. Our deep seeing of impermanence then fosters detachment, rids us of the illusion that we can find any lasting peace and stability in the things of the world. We can become so overwhelmed by some of our experiences that we feel totally incapable of managing things. Um, during, during my first three-month retreat at IMS, my job was cleaning the meditation. Everybody has a 45-minute job a day on retreats there. My job was cleaning the meditation hall. They had put some jack-o'-lanterns in for Halloween evening, and my job was to get them out. 
and I walked in. I mean, I'd been accustomed. I run the dust mop. I dust the. I walked in and I saw those. There were only about seven, eight of them in there, and I just felt overwhelmed with the simple job of removing these from the sitting hall. It looked like such a daunting task. I collapsed in tears on the front lawn, and. This was somebody who has organized international professional conferences, and I felt incapable of getting seven or eight pumpkins out of a meditation hall. So the, this kind of a meltdown goes with this particular stage of practice when we're making this transition to this deeper level of seeing and, and um, very humbling in, in terms of, of the confidence that you had had in yourself and your abilities before. But seeing and accepting this kind of impermanence starts bringing a lot of important healing. Now, it can begin relatively early in practice, but we need very deep experiences of radical impermanence to eradicate the very deep-seated roots of disorder in our beings. In very, very deep practice, a stage that corresponds to what John of the Cross called dark night of spirit, and some of you probably heard that term dark night um, in spiritual practice. We have exper experiences of radical impermanence even beyond what I've spoken of so far. I realize this gets a little scary for some people, but you'll, you'll hang. Um, Teresa of Avila, John's counterpart, wrote of this, quote, what happens is so obscure it can't be explained more clearly. In this prayer, all the faculties fail and they're so suspended that in no way does one think they're working. So when we're intensely in this, involved in meditation in this way, the confusion can extend beyond times of meditation. Involvement with ordinary experience can be very, very difficult. We're too deeply and immediately in touch with reality for our senses to function the way they usually do. The mind is seeing at a level that is beyond the capacity of the senses to grasp. So it feels like they're not working right, they don't, that, that they're failing. Um, Again, you get a little taste of that in hearing the change in the bell. It just gets much more radical. Hearing goes on and off. You're hearing and then you're not. And it's because the spaces in the gaps between pulses of the experience of hearing, the emptiness there, the mind is hitting on, on seeing that emptiness more and more because it is mostly emptiness with just flecks of experience, just like this table's mostly emptiness with flecks of matter in it. Um, so we're at a level where the senses, when they try to grasp what's going on, they're all confused and distorted and they don't work right. You can see somebody standing in front of you and then they just disappear because this, this, the on-off, on-off has so confused eyesight, can't keep up with what the mind is seeing, the rapid um, on-off of experience. So we can't rely on what our senses are telling us. We're actually experiencing reality at the level that physicists talk about when they tell us this is mostly empty space. And there are indeed um, story, one of the 
not common but occasional byproducts of practice at this time is that some people become capable of moving through material objects because the way the mind is seeing them and seeing all the space and seeing all the space in their own being that it works. This doesn't happen to everybody, but it, it, it has been reported as one of the more esoteric practices that can happen. Mostly what we experience is just the utter loss of, of moorings and the confusion. Airplane flying overhead, you'll hear a chunk of noise and then nothing, and then all of a sudden another chunk of noise, and I mentioned the person standing across you from the hall. The death and birth of consciousness happens many times a second for every experience that it feels like we're staying with continuously. Now this is going on all the time. It's just that we don't see it because we aren't deep enough in, um, and meditation brings us deep enough in. And, and what causes these big gaps in seeing and hearing and the such um, is, is that the sensory experience just simply gives up trying to keep up with the deep mental experience. Um, deep knowledge of this death and birth of consciousness and, and of, of, of experiencing um, is seen in the dying words of the Tibetan Lama Kalu Rinpoche. His disciples were gathered around him mourning as he lay dying. He held up his hand and told them, stop that nonsense. And he said, nothing happens. What he meant by this was that nothing that has not already been going on was going to start happening. Conscious con consciousness continually dies to one experience and rises on a new one throughout life. And, excuse me. He understood that the last minute of consciousness in this life would simply condition the first minute of consciousness in his next state, as each moment of consciousness had been conditioning the next all along through this life. Part of meditation practice then is becoming able to fully and deeply accept the truth of impermanence. When Thai Buddhist master Ajahn Chah was asked to explain it simply, he held up a cup and said, enjoy your favorite cup as if it were already broken. When we realize that nothing lasts forever, that everything that is made up of parts will come apart, that everything that's born will die, that everything we've started will eventually end, that all the ties we've forged will be dissolved, it changes the way we live our lives. When he decided in his young adulthood to pursue the spiritual life, the Buddha-to-be recognized how senseless it is to build one's life and happiness on things of the world. He said, quote, Why, when I myself am subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, why do I seek after what is also subject to these things? And then he embarked on spiritual practice. His dying words, the most important thing that he felt he had to say to his disciples when he was dying, his dying words were to urge them 
to remember that all conditioned things pass, so practice diligently. That was his dying reminder of was of impermanence. Christian Chiara Lubick, who founded an, um, a Christian group called the Focolare Movement, they're quite nice people, by the way, made a similar decision when her fiancé was killed in war. Today, the Focolare, which she began in Italy, is a worldwide organization of Christians seeking to live a deeper spiritual life in the realization that basing our happiness on the things of the world is a dead end. So, I'm doing great. I have time for questions even. To sum up, we were talking about the universal characteristic of conditioned reality of impermanence. That everything is in constant flux. Everything that's made up of parts comes apart. Nothing lasts. All will go. Buddhist scripture says, quote, all compounded things are impermanent, unstable, and can bring us no lasting comfort, close quote. And Master Mahasi Sayadaw said, quote, When we become more practiced, we perceive in every act of noticing that an object appears suddenly and disappears instantly, close quote. Watching experiences thus come and go impresses impermanence on us. Everything continually changes, not lasting even a moment. Quote, every event is born, stays, and dies in the same moment. Birth, stay, and death are not three moments, but only one. Continuity is only an appearance, not the truth. Close quote. And of course, when we establish ourselves in deep meditation practice, this understanding becomes ours. Again, awareness of impermanence greatly deepens over practice. And this insight is called anicca vipassana, insight knowledge into impermanence. It removes the illusion of permanence from us and greatly lessens attachments, pride, and conceit. Seeing the impermanent nature of all conditioned reality is one of the most important insights in our practice. It's the base from which we understand the remaining two characteristics of, un of conditioned reality, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness. From clearly seeing impermanence, all else flows. So my blessing for all of us tonight is May we be open to deeply seeing and accepting impermanence so that we might come to that which is beyond all change. And I will take your questions, and do you want this on or off? Can you just leave it on for the question? Any questions? Is abandoning hope a good thing? Is what? Abandoning hope a good thing? It, no, it's not abandoning hope. It's seeing reality as it is, but there is the hope of the changeless, the undying, the perfect satisfaction. There's the hope of Nibbana. Um, it is possible sometimes for people to get mired down uh, by, that's part of the, 
I mean, nobody ever told you that practice is always a cakewalk. And there are times of, of suffering in this practice, but it's coming to reality as it is. And it, it does not have the effect on people once they stabilize, does not have the effect of causing them to withdraw or, or do anything like that. It actually usually brings a, a kind of compassion that makes them want to care even more and be in service even more. So one doesn't just curl up and give up all hope. And it was... You had mentioned that you had given your daughter some time of the cross to go through, and she came back to you 15 minutes later, which I find amazing in that I found my limited uh, research in some of this stuff extremely arduous. And I think it took me 50 or 20 minutes to get through a paragraph. Is there something that, that, what do you recommend? What is that you gave her? What, what, uh, what do I recommend? What do I recommend for what? Um, all of his works are in one volume called The Collected Works of St. John of the Cross. Um, it's sold by the Institute of Carmelite Studies in, in Washington, D.C., and you can Google Institute of Carmelite Studies and get it. Um, what I recommend is that people start with reading his letters or reading his sayings of light and love. Um, they're little aphorisms, much like the Dhammapada is aphorisms of the, of the Buddha. These are aphorisms of John of the Cross. So I recommend starting with those before you hit the heavier stuff. Um, but um, you, you can get it all in one volume. Now, it is possible there's a translation by an Englishman, Alison Pierce, which is even older, and you can buy separate pieces of his work that way. And a professor in Arizona has translated his, I think it's Dark Night of the Soul, is that she has done. So you can get individual volumes, but the one that the Carmelites push is this one that they put out that has all of it together. And um, as Rebecca found, anyone who reads it, well, this is Dhamma. I mean, he, 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 he talks about the effects of attachment on us. He talks about the kinds of torments of our minds. He, the stages of development of practice that he outlines correspond to Buddhist. It's amazing. He's good stuff. And, of course, um, commercial. Uh, the retreats that we, we, we do, um, what we call a silence and awareness retreat, which is Buddhist practice, but teachings of John of the Cross integrated into it. Um, we always have one in Minnesota every summer and one on the East Coast. And we, about every three year, two or three years, we go to Scotland, we go to Australia occasionally. We're going to Australia next January. So our silence and awareness retreat that's in our flyer um, brings it together quite nicely, too. It seems to me that the state of nirvana that you mentioned, it is, in a way, it's a permanent state of tranquility and uh, fullness. Am I right? Nirvana? Yes. N well, nirvana is the end of our practice. Nirvana is the, is the end of the practice. But 
in a sense, nirvana isn't it, uh, itself impermanent? No. Um, it's not part of conditioned reality. Conditioned reality is matter, mind states, and consciousness. Those are the three conditioned realities. They make up us and everything else in conditioned reality. Um, Nibbana is a totally other kind of reality. Unborn, undying, unchanging, da, da, all the... But the experience of Nibbana comes and goes. Oh, the experience of Nibbana that we have in our practice will not last forever. We, we have it, it ends. Um, but... How do we know that Nibbana is permanent? How do we know? Well, I guess I could say we have... Similar, it seems to me similar to the Christian teaching about uh, the everlasting life. Um, and, and indeed, they are very similar. And if you would understand what, what John, how John of the Cross describes what happens, uh, in short, the Buddhist teachings are that um, until we finally got it right, quit clinging to things, we'll be reborn over and over again. But when we finally have it right... Um, we die into, the consciousness dies into Nibbana and no more rebirth. John of the Cross says that, that when we're completely ready, we die into loving knowledge of God and, and that's it, you know. So, I mean, it, it's very similar what, what they say um, as our final end. Um, how do we know that of Nibbana? The Buddha taught it. How do we know it of anything else? Many religions talk about some state or experience or whatever, and, and of course, Nibbana is not a state, Nibbana is not an experience, Nibbana simply is. Uh, but um, it, it's a rather common um, universal belief, but it is, it's, a, it's a belief because people don't come back. Wants to, however, people do come back after an experience of touching Nibbana in this life, because that's not permanent. That's the best I can do on that. Anything else? Well, um, I want to remind you all, um, I would love to be able to, to send you our newsletter once a year or something if you're not already on our, our mailing list. And I have the thing back there on the table that if you would like to, just sign on and um, we'll add you. And I will send a copy of this year's flyer by email to everyone who, um, who signs up. And I guess we're ready to go. You, you have cookies and something usually or not? No? No. Oh, well, I, I, I don't usually talk on Sunday. I usually talk on another night, so that's probably different. Okay. Well, whatever you do now, go do it with happiness. May you all be well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh-oh. Problem or not? No, no. Not a problem. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.